Thank you very much, Greg. I want to just start off by first off thanking Pastor Fred. Um, I was actually talking to my wife about this last night. The fact that he can go and preach somewhere else and he's all right with Greg running the show first and foremost shows a lot of faith on his part, but also allowing me to stand in his place and to bring you the word. That's not something that I take lightly. Um, this is something that I'm very serious about, and so I'm excited about bringing you a message this morning. Uh, so thank you, first and foremost. There's a lot of people that have encouraged me with prayers. Uh, there are some people that I probably don't know that have been praying for me. So if you pray for the message week in and week out, I just really want to thank you for that. Um, it's encouraging to a pastor to know that his... Um, that the congregation that he's going to be preaching to has been praying for him. Uh, but I also want to say just a quick thank you to my wife, who whenever I prepare for sermons, uh, or I prefer, prepare for any kind of talk, uh, know that I've been talking her ear off about this for the past couple weeks, and it's probably... She's probably so sick of hearing about John chapter 2. But at the same time, uh, it's good that I have someone that I can just like run my ideas through and things like that. And the things that God has been revealing to me, uh, she gets to kind of see the behind the scenes stuff. So thank you so much for that. Um, but anyway, uh, good news and bad news. Bad news is we're still in John chapter 2. So we're, we're getting there. But the good news is, is I have the honor of closing us out in John chapter 2 this morning. So next week when we come back, unless Fred goes on a tangent, we will be in chapter 3. Uh, I don't know that, so if that happens, I'm sorry. Okay, so if you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and open to John chapter 2. If you have it on your phone or whatever you need, uh, go ahead and open that up. And we are going to be in verses 12. So kind of picking up... Of the, uh, picking up um, at the end of last week's sermon, and we are going to be reading through the end of the chapter, which is verse 25. I will read the passage first, we will pray, and then we will dive into the message. John chapter 2, verse 12 says this, after this he went down to Capernaum, together with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they stayed there only a few days. The Jewish Passover was near, and so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found people selling oxen, sheep, and doves, and he also found the money changers sitting there. After making a whip out of cords, he drove everyone out of the temple with their sheep and oxen. He also poured out the money changers' coins and overturned the tables. He told those who were selling doves, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews replied to him, what sign will you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. Therefore the Jews said, this temple took 46 years to build and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the statement Jesus had made. While he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them since he knew them all, and because he did not need anyone to testify about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Would you pray with me this morning? God, we love you so much. 
Lord, thank you for just the privilege of being able to be here to worship you freely, to sing songs about you, to just come into this place of worship, Lord, for the children's ministry, for this building, Lord, for the Need Cafe, for the space that we're allowed here. God, there's so much to be thankful for in this season of Thanksgiving coming off of that holiday. But God, as we focus in on your word now, not only do we want to express uh, gratitude, but Lord, we really want to just center our minds and our hearts and our focus around your word. And God, I'm just asking that your Holy Spirit would speak through me, remove me from this stage, take my place, Lord, and just speak through me, allow your word to penetrate the hearts of those who are sitting under it this morning, and I just pray, God, that we would be different, we would be changed, and we would be better because of it, and we pray that above all else, you would receive, you would receive all glory and honor and praise this morning, and it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. So first and foremost, we have to remember that with any narrative in John's gospel, we have to keep in mind the purpose of his writings. This can actually be found in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. It's wonderful. I wish every book of the Bible would do this, but there is an actual purpose statement from the author himself of the reason why he writes what he writes, whether it's everything before or after. This is the reason John is writing this gospel. And it says in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, he says this, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these, the ones that I have written, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So keep that in mind when we're reflecting on today's passage. I want us to keep in mind why this account was written down in the first place. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus was a true historical figure? No. Although that's true, Jesus was a true historical figure. No. These things were written down so that you might believe that he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, which by placing your belief in him and your trust in his name that you may ultimately have eternal life. I want to I note here, too, this particular passage there is actually a little bit of a debate on whether this event itself, the cleansing of the temple, Jesus driving the money changers out with a whip, whether this event happened once or twice in Jesus's ministry. Matthew, Mark, and Luke record an account similar to this, uh, and whenever they record it, it's actually towards the end of Jesus's ministry after he rides in on, on the donkey and people lay their coats down and their, and their cloaks and, and the palms, Palm Sunday, we celebrate that. It happens immediately after that. While John seems to be speaking of an event that happened early in Christ's ministry, right after the wedding in Cana. My personal opinion on this, and after doing some study, is that we're talking about two separate accounts here. Jesus cleansed the temple twice in his ministry, but at the same time, there are, and most conservative Bible scholars will agree with that statement, that this is two separate events. Either way, I kind of want you, you know, if you, that's the kind of stuff you like to look into. A study on the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke contrasted that of John is a wonderful study. Do that. Uh, obviously, throw caution to the wind with who you're learning about because there's people who try to peg scripture against each other. But know this, regardless of whether it happened once or twice, there's no effect on the salvation message of Christ. So I just want to throw that, if that was ever a question you had, like I've read about this in other gospels and it happened at the end of his ministry. Why is John talking about this at the beginning? It's very, very likely there was two separate accounts of this particular thing happening. 
That being said, let's set the stage. Verse 12, Jesus and his disciples, his mother and his brothers went down to Capernaum for only a few days after the wedding in Cana. So last week we learned about the miraculous miracle that took place in private, in secret. Only the servants of that wedding understood and knew what happened, where Jesus turned the water into wine, the the wine that was supposed to be towards the end of the wedding feast is supposed to be the crappier wine, the wine that is not really that good because everybody's drunk at that point and no one cares about what kind of wine you're drinking. But Jesus changes the water into wine and it's this miraculous miracle because the wine is not only it, it was like 150 gallons or something like that. It was a lot. But not only that, it was, it was amazing. It was the best wine. And it's more than just a story of this miracle at a wedding. It was representative of Jesus himself coming as the new covenant. This new covenant is better than the old. Jesus is better. We see in verse 13, though, that the Jewish, pa- Jewish Passover was near. So Jesus then went up to Jerusalem to partake as any Jewish man would in that time. So let's pause here for a second. Before we dive into this, I just want to set the stage. What is Passover? Why is this important to understand where this, not only where this took place, but when it took place during the Jewish Passover? Well, let me paint you a picture. The Jewish Passover was a celebration event, a feast that commemorated the night when the angel of death passed over the homes, there's that word Passover, the homes of the Israelite people who had blood on their, on their doorposts. This took place in Egypt during the final plague. If you remember the story in the Old Testament of God sending plagues uh, in, as warning to Pharaoh to let his people go free. You can read about this account in Exodus chapter 12, the Passover specifically. But not only was this a celebration, it was mandated by God. In fact, I did a little bit of research. Every adult male living within 15 miles of Jerusalem was required to be there. And if they were of a certain age, they were due to pay a temple tax. Many Jews, I'm talking about tens upon thousands of Jewish men and women as well, made very long journeys to be there. Not only were they there to pay a temple tax, but also to offer an animal for sacrifice in worship to God. Representative of that, again, back in the Old Testament, what they were required to do then. Not only that, there were also traveling in many Gentile believers, non-Jewish believers, people who were not of Jewish descent that still wanted to recognize and celebrate the work that the Lord did in the Israelite people. The religious leaders and the money changers we read about, well, at one point in time, were a separate entity. But in this setting, they're one and the same. It's the same group of people. They're working the same business, collecting taxes, and which, by the way, foreign currency, so Gentile believers, foreign currency wasn't accepted because it was considered idolatry because of what was printed on the money. That's a whole study in and of itself. We're not going to go into that. But basically, they had to then trade in their money, you know, like you would do foreign exchanging. And obviously, their money wasn't worth as much. And so there was just all of this debacle happening. Not only that, they were being overcharged for animals to sacrifice. So they would sell animals to people who were coming in to celebrate. So people journeying in from long distances would find it inconvenient to bring animals with them for two primary reasons. First off, 
it's a long journey. They're not traveling by wagon or car or plane, so it's not like they can check their sheep or their auction or their oxen and, and put it beneath, you know, in the cargo space. Uh, they're literally bringing animals with them. And if you did bring an animal of your own, there was a vetting process led by the religious leaders that would almost guarantee that your animal would be rejected. Your animal had to be uh, blemish-free. It had to be perfect. And so they would always find something wrong with your animal anyway, and they would kind of toss it to the side, and you'd be required to purchase one of the animals they had there regardless, marked up very significantly in price. So they were exploiting these people. They were taking advantage of them. They were making them pay more. It was a money-making business. It was not about worship. Not only that, before we dive in, one last thing I just want to kind of point out. All of this, all of this hustle and bustle used to be done outside of the temple courts, but at some point in time, it moved into the outer temple courts, which is better known as the Gentile courts. Pause. So what does that mean? The Gentile courts was the only place in the temple where Gentile believers, non-Jewish people could come and worship. That's the only place they were actually allowed so imagine then being a Gentile believer, coming to worship God during Passover. You traveled from a far distance, more than likely. You've been taxed. You've been ripped off by overpaying for an animal to be sacrificed, as well as all of this is happening in this space where you're supposed to be worshiping. The noise, the smell of all the animals, all the distractions, as thousands upon thousands of people are yelling, screaming, pushing, shoving, haggling. I'll give you this much. No, you're required to give me this much. Well, I only have this. Well, it doesn't matter. And all the while, that's the only part of the temple you're allowed in, and you're there to worship? There's not much worshiping happening here. So all of that to say, this was a major event, all centered around, or supposedly, worshiping and reflecting on the saving work that God bestowed on the Israelite people all the way back when they were slaves in Egypt. But that worship is lost, and it's nowhere to be found. So I want to jump right in and say this. If you're taking notes this morning, or if you have the handout, or you just want to glance up at the screen, or whatever you need to do, point number one this morning is that Jesus demands true worship of God. I'm going to pick back up in verse 13. It says this, the Jewish Passover was near, so Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and in the temple he found people selling oxen, sheep, doves, and he also found the money changers sitting there. After making a whip, out of cords. Hold up. He made a whip? Notice it did not say Jesus found a whip or Jesus thought about grabbing a whip. No, he made a whip out of cords. That's calculated. You understand that? Like Jesus, through his thought process, said, Oh, absolutely not. And then he went and found cords. I don't know if it was cords from the animals or he had to leave and go get some. I don't know where he found these, but he's thinking this whole time, like, I'm making a whip and I'm getting these people out of here. Not today. There's this, I don't know where this came from, but at least maybe in the Christian circles that I grew up in, grew up in from the age of 14, uh, whenever I came to Christ. But this idea, non-believers have like this picture they paint in their head of, well, God of the Old Testament is angry and he's a judge and he's harsh versus God of the New Testament. Well, he's just loving and kind and gentle and merciful. And all of that is true 
in both camps, I'm just letting you know, but this story in and of itself debunks that idea that the God of the Old Testament is mean and harsh and judging, and the God of the New Testament is loving and merciful. Well, because clearly here, Jesus, God in the flesh, is angry. So much so that he made a whip. I mean, isn't this the same Jesus that preaches the Sermon on the Mount about turning the other cheek, about gentleness, about meekness? Can we just stop for a second, though, and thank God that Jesus got angry here and gets angry today in the right way? I'm thankful for that. Think about it. Anger, I don't know. Okay, so little side tangent. I teach in prison, not now because of COVID, but I usually teach in prison. I teach about all kinds of stuff. I'm not going to go into it. But one of the things that we talk about is this idea of emotions and emotions dictating your behavior. And I don't know what it is, but about anger, anger is always categorized as a negative emotion. You understand that emotions are values neutral and emotions just exist. They're not good, bad, right, wrong, moral, immoral. Emotions are just the things that we feel. It's what we do out of those emotions that count. So anger isn't good or bad. It just is. It's what you do in that anger that can be good, bad, right, or wrong. It's a lot like, think about it this way. It's a lot like the dash lights on your car, anger. At least when the dash lights go on in my car that something's wrong, I get angry, but that's not what I'm talking about here. But what do they do? What does that do? It indicates that something's not right. Something is not the way it should be. We get angry. Why are we angry? Because something's not the way we think it should be. Honestly, if you were to do a study about what angers God, what God detests, we don't like to think about the things that God hates, but there's plenty, to, plenty that the Bible says about that. What you would ultimately find, it would ultimately show you what he loves. It would ultimately show you how things should be by what he's angry at when they're not the way they should be. We all get angry about things in this life. Yeah? Now I'm the only one that gets angry? Sweet. <laughs> I thought so. Uh, no, but seri seriously, we all get angry about things in this life. The problem is, is what makes us angry a lot of the time are usually self-centered, pride-filled things. They're human, human mindset. Versus God, who is righteously angry, when things are not the way he intended. He is the sovereign creator. We are not. So yes, when we say that God is love, that's true. We know that God is love. God is merciful. God is gentle. God is uh, all loving anyway. But he also has righteous anger, jealousy, judgment, along with mercy and patience and love. All of those things, they all work together in perfect harmony with one another. There's a famous passage of scripture, I'm sure you've heard it at some point, whether in scripture or just like blurted out loud, James 1.19, says, my dear brothers and sisters, understand this, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. We usually stop there. That's a great verse to apply to our lives, absolutely. But why? Verse 20 says, for human anger... Not godly anger, for human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. We operate in the mindset that righteousness ought to come as a result of our anger. I'm angry about this, and I'm going to be angry and let people know so that I can set things right. That's not what God does. With God, it's the other way around. His anger comes from the fact that he is righteous. 
That's why we refer to it as righteous anger. We know that God created man in his own image. But what we tend to forget is that after the fall, we did the exact same thing the other way around. We started to create God in our image. So let's just address the elephant in the room. Last week, it was the elephant in the room was Jesus is at a wedding and he's given more wine to a bunch of drunk people. What? That's Jesus? What's he doing that for? That's not what I was taught in Bible school or Sunday school whenever I was growing up. But what about here? The elephant in the room. If you're sitting here this morning uncomfortable by this passage, which I can understand that. But let's just address the elephant in the room. If you're thinking to yourself, this isn't right. Jesus is out of line here. He made a whip. He drove people out. Was he whipping people or the animals? What was the whip for? You know what? He was wrong to do this. Remember, we are created in his image. So what ultimately angers Jesus should anger us as well. Why? What made Jesus angry here? True worship to God was lost. It was gone. It was nowhere to be found in the one place you'd think and in the time Passover at the temple where you think worship would be front and center, it's nowhere to be found. Jesus is angry about that. And we catch a vivid image of this, of this mindset of God uh, in Isaiah chapter 1. So I, as I read this, it's Isaiah chapter 1, verses 11 through 16. I want you to ask yourself, is God angry here at Judah and Jerusalem and their treatment of sacrifices to him, just as Jesus is angry here? Think about this. While I'm reading this, ask yourself, is God angry here? Isaiah 1, 11 through 16. What are all your sacrifices to me, asks the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings and rams and the fat of well-fed calves. I have no desire for the blood of bulls, lambs, or male goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires this from you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing useless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons and Sabbaths and the calling of solemn assemblies, I cannot stand iniquity within a festival. I hate your new moons and prescribed festivals. They have become a burden to me. I'm tired of putting up with them. This sounds like a parent talking to their kid. I'm tired of putting up with them. When you spread out, this, this broke my heart. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will refuse to look at you. Even if you offer countless prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered in blood. Wash yourselves. Cleanse yourselves. Remove your evil deeds from my sight Stop doing evil. Is this not what we see happening here in our passage? What's supposed to be a moment of sacrifice and offerings to God and worship? And Jesus is like, I don't see any of that here. And I'm tired of it. So much so that I'm going to make a whip and I'm going to drive you out. Jesus calls it out. Jesus gets upset when God's holiness is stripped. Let's continue. After making a whip of cords, he drove everyone out of the temple with his sheep and oxen. He poured out the money changers' coins and overturned the tables. He told those who were selling doves, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Notice he says, 
my father's house. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. The temple is not theirs. We see this all the way back when Jesus was only 12. You remember back Passover again. Jesus and his family go in for Passover. This is early in the other gospel accounts. And then Jesus' parents are horrible parents and they leave. And like two days later, they're like, where's Jesus? I don't know. I thought he was with you. I don't know how that happened. But they left Jesus back in, in Jerusalem. Anyway, um, and they go back and they, they're looking everywhere for him. And they find him in the temple. And Jesus says this as a 12-year-old boy. Smack my 12-year-old boy if he ever talked to me. I'm just kidding. No, I would never do that. But Jesus says this, why were you searching for me? No big deal. Didn't you know that it was necessary for me to be in my father's house, to be in the temple? This is my father's house. But they did not understand what he said to them. Fast forward to when he's 30 years old here roughly, they still don't get it. This is my father's house. Jesus' actions are so profound. This, this is incredible. I'm trying to imagine myself as a disciple when Jesus, like, makes a whip. At first, were they there with him when he made the whip? They're like, Jesus, what's that for? What are you doing? Bro, put, it that, put that down. Or were they just like, do, do your thing? Like, I have no part in this. Like, because it doesn't say, I'll get to that. Okay, anyway, Jesus' actions are so profound that the disciples were called an Old Testament psalm while it was happening. That Old Testament psalm is uh, Psalm 69.9. This is a psalm where David is crying out to God because of his enemies who fail to understand his commitment to the temple. It says, zeal for your house will consume me. Have you ever been consumed by something? It just overtakes everything mentally, physically, emotionally, socially. It's all you talk about. It's all you think about. It's all you feel about. Zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus is displaying here what, what would we call Davidic or Messianic status. Jesus is the new David. Jesus, so much so that they're not the only ones who notice. I want to read verse 18. So the Jews replied to him, what sign will you show us for doing these things? What sign will you show us? Essentially, what they're asking is, what authority do you have? I, I'm sorry, who are you? And not just like, a, I have no idea who you are, but like, no, who are you? Because here's the thing. Well, first off, side note, it's important to, to, to understand. Only unbelievers ask for signs. You understand what I'm saying? Believers don't look for signs. We'll learn about that in the final point. Unbelievers are the ones that are like, show me a sign then. You're doing all this? Well, give me a sign that proves that you are. No, believers don't need a sign because we have faith in the one who's, who, who's okay, I, I'm going to go on a tangent there. I don't want to do that because I want to stick to the point. The high priests who are watching this or whoever these Jewish people are, it's the Jews replied to him. I automatically go to the high priests in, this, in my mind, but that's not what it says here. This could just be everybody that just witnessed what happened. The Jewish people said, what signs will you show us? But either way, the people who are watching this unfold understand what kind of authority Jesus is exerting. Not just the disciples. They're calling back to like a Psalm of David and like, wow, this is very Davidic. This is messianic. So are they. They would be thinking of passages like in Malachi 3, 1 through 3. I'm not going to go into all that. There's a ton of Old Testament that would uh, pertain to this. I'm not going to read through all of it. But they would expect something like this from the Messiah, Someone that would come in and start cleaning house. 
But Jesus' response is incredible. They ask for a sign, and he gives them one. His death and his resurrection. And they missed it. Which brings me to my next point. So first off, we saw that Jesus demands true worship of God. Point number two this morning is Jesus redefines the temple. Verses 18 through 22 says this. So the Jews replied to him, what signs will you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. Therefore, the Jews said, I'm sure they were confused. This temple took 46 years to build, which by the way, it wasn't even done at that point. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and statement Jesus had made. Bang! Jesus states, I am the temple now. What a statement! Essentially, what Jesus is saying is that all of this, although the worship was lost in it at this point, but all of this, the temple, the sacrifices, people traveling in, doing all this stuff, there's no need for it anymore. You want to know why? Because I am here. That is incredible. For sake of time, I'm not going to reread all that Fred did last week in Hebrews, but if you were here for that, or if you have a chance to go back and listen to the passages he was reading, he was alluding to a lot of this. You should read that. I'm going to tell you one more time, for the record, read the book of Hebrews. It's incredible, uh, and it pertains to things like this. So Jesus came and replaced the sacrificial system set up here on earth, done imperfectly, might I add, that sacrificial system that really rep merely represented that what was in heaven, Jesus came and he offered himself perfectly once and for all. That is amazing. So when Jesus gives them a response to their question about a sign, he doesn't just give them a sign. He gives them the sign, my death and resurrection. You want access to God? You want to worship God? You want to commune with and ultimately be in the presence of God? You got to come through me. The new temple, the new curtain that separates the holy from the holies, the new perfect spotless sacrificial lamb, Jesus Christ, the son of God, the Messiah, I am here, and they missed it. The progression of this idea of the temple is actually astounding. When you really think about it through the course of Scripture up until this point. So in the beginning, God created a place where man could live in God's presence. Eden, right? We know that. Because of sin, we were then banished from that place. Adam and Eve were made to leave after God clothed them, sent them away, right? In the wilderness, some years later, decent, decent while later, God created the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, a movable place where people could draw near to God. And only the high priest, there was a priesthood set up, which is significant to what we're called to now as a royal priesthood. This is why you need to read Hebrews again. But the only, uh, only the high priest was able to access the Holy of Holies, what is now the inner, inner, inner courts of the temple, separated by a veil. That's significant for later. God then gave Solomon permission to build a permanent place. That's the temple, but that temple was destroyed when God's people were taken into exile. Well, God then, um, once Israel returned from Babylon, the temple was rebuilt. That's the one we're in in this narrative. 
And now Jesus, Jesus comes onto the scene and he is basically saying, I'm the final temple. When Jesus uttered the words, it is finished on the cross. Remember, there was an earthquake and the veil was torn from top to bottom into two pieces that separated us from the place, the Holy of Holies, the God's dwelling place. The veil was torn and we now have access to God's presence because of and through Jesus Christ. That is incredible. That is amazing. That is something that I cannot comprehend, but is the coolest thing in all the Bible. Praise God. So how do we respond to all of this? What does this have to do with us? Well, I hope you see now that this story is more than just about how we treat church on Sundays. This wasn't just about Jesus getting upset because worship wasn't going the way he wanted it to. Or the way we operate Sunday morning service, you know, don't have a coffee shop in the middle of Sunday morning service because it could be distracting to other people and don't upcharge the coffee prices because we don't even have a coffee shop in here, but you know what I mean. Uh, or how, what we as Redemption Church do week in and week out. This isn't just about being angry at the way we as the church worship. This isn't just about when it's okay. Let me say this side note. This isn't just about when it's okay to flip tables either. A lot of times this passage is taken out of context and used in this, this, this way, in this harsh way of, well, they're doing something that I don't approve of so I can come in and flip tables and drive them out. That's not what this passage is about. This is not, this is not about harsh Christianity. All I have to say in response to what Jesus came to this earth for and did, remember that we ourselves, I'm about to blow your minds, we ourselves now are the dwelling place of God's spirit. You understand, friends, if you're here this morning and you believe in Jesus Christ, as son of God, if you've placed your trust in him, if you've been born again, as we're actually going to uh, learn about next week, hopefully, if we're in chapter 3 next week, that's what we're going to be learning about. The most famous passage in all the Bible, John 3, 16, we're going to learn about that. If you are born again, the spirit of God comes and dwells within you. How incredible is that? But also, and this is a sad truth, how lightly do we treat that reality? Yeah, God's spirit lives in me, I know. Do you understand the magnitude of that? The miraculous miracle that that is? Speaking of miracles, just before I move on, do you understand the miracle that took place in this narrative? Before I get off track here and start talking about application, the miracle that took place here, like last week, we saw an actual miracle took place, right? Water was turned into wine. Not just that, but a lot of it. And it was incredible, and it was something done kind of in secret. Now we have this public display of Jesus' anger, and, and he's talking about his body being the temple. Do you understand the miracle that took place here? Not just referring to the sign that Jesus pointed to, but the fact that he had the ability as a single person. It's not like his disciples helped. It doesn't say that his disciples helped him out. It doesn't say that uh, he had a band of people with him to come clear the temple courts. You understand there was thousands upon thousands of people in that temple court. And Jesus, one, one person, one man, drove everybody out. Not he just upset everybody and, you know, snapped and got everybody's attention. No, he literally got everybody out of the temple courts. One man did that. Thousands of people, animals, he flipped over all the tables. That's a miracle. That is, that's God's authority in man right there. That's, that's just incredible. And, and all that to say, 
Just a cool thought. Okay, but also, uh, let, let's go back to this idea of God's spirit dwelling within us. I just wanted to kind of, I, I feel like I missed that. But what does scripture say about us and God's spirit dwelling within us? Well, Paul has a lot to say about that. In 1 Corinthians uh, 3.16, he says this. I feel like this is a pretty famous verse. At least uh, it is to me, it comes to mind. Don't you yourselves know that you, you, believers, are God's temple and that the spirit of God lives in you? Don't you know that? Not only that, later on in that letter, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20, he says this. Don't you know, he kind of reiterates, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. What price? The price Jesus paid on the cross. So glorify God with your temple, with your body. How in the world are we supposed to do that? Luckily, Paul talks about this in another letter of his, in the, uh, the letter to the Romans. Romans 12, verse 1, he says this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, so therefore, in view of everything we just talked about up until this point in this letter, in view of the mercies of God, the fact that God is merciful and saved you, even though you were dead in your sin, what? I urge you, I urge you, do this to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Everything we do as the spirit of the living God's dwelling place, as temples of the Holy Spirit, everything we do ought to be worship. I fail at that miserably. We are to use our bodies as a living sacrifice, set apart, holy, literally what that means, set apart and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Sacrifice, really? Like physically, or what, do you, what does that mean there? Yeah, physically if necessary, mentally, emotionally, socially, spiritually, holistically. Every part of who you are ought to be presented as a living sacrifice. If you're not sacrificing anything for God, are you really worshiping? I don't like passages like this in Scripture. I'm not sitting here saying that you should look to be miserable and, and suffer for the things of God, but if you're comfortable in your life and there's no sacrifices needing to be made in any capacity, are you really worshiping? Because we're called to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. There's no time frame on that. It's not like, well, only on Sundays. I give everything on Sunday. I wake up early, I come set up church, and I play on the worship team, or I, you know, I greet, or I work with the children's ministry, I help tear down, I spray all the chairs down, wipe them down. Man, I'm beat. Oh, what a sacrifice that was. And then Monday through Saturday, comfort. Everything Jesus demanded in the first point of this sermon, that true worship to God is now directed towards our lives. It's no longer a system, it's a way of life. We are to be holy as God is holy. And listen, God is not some killjoy, okay? It sounds like, oh man, he just wants me to be sacrificial like all the time, like that sounds horrible. This shouldn't be a bummer. You know that Jesus, the same Jesus guy later on in this gospel is going to say this in John 10, 10, that he has come, Jesus Christ has come, that so they, so those who believe in me, they may have life and have it in abundance. What is, how does sacrificial living and abundant life go hand in hand? God wants our 
God wants us to have an abundant life. God wants our temples to be purified. God wants our lives to be worshiped to him. Therefore, we ought to let God operate our lives the way he wants to. I don't know if you're familiar with Jackie Hill Perry. Uh, she's a pretty profound Christian woman now uh, in the Christian circles. She has an incredible testimony. I'm not going to go into that. But if, if you know anything about her, if you've never heard of her, look her up. She's wonderful. She has a couple of books out. Uh, and she's just a great woman of God. She's talking about this idea of sub full submission to God and how that seems just like a horrible thing. Like presenting your bodies as a living sacrifice, being fully submissive to God. That, that sounds terrible. But she kind of, she has a quote here that I'm going to read, and it says this, all of the turmoil in this life, it doesn't come from us submitting to God. Where does it come from? It's coming from this place of people thinking that they're better masters of themselves. We're terrible masters of ourselves. Why? Because we're wicked. But God is not. God is sinless. He is holy. He is pure. He is wise. He is good. He is kind. He is perfect. And so to submit to God is actually to be in the safest place in the universe. It takes faith to believe that, but it creates joy when we believe that. I love that. David, after one of the biggest failures in his life, puts it this way. Psalm 51, verses 10, 10 through 12. And by the way, you don't have to pray a prayer like this. You don't have to wait until you fail to pray a prayer like this. You don't have to wait until the moment in your life when you're at the lowest point where you've messed up so radically. This could be a daily prayer, and it ought to be. I'm preaching to myself at this point. David says this, Psalm 51, 10 through 12, God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit in me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. Come and clean up this temple, Jesus. Bring a whip if you need to. Christian, believer, uphold and defend the holiness of God in your life. So Jesus demands true worship, and he redefines the temple. And we see the response in verse 22 that eventually, eventually, <laughs> his disciples understood this claim after his resurrection. They didn't get it either. And along those same lines and building on the individual application of the last point, I want to focus in on the final point of this sermon, which is about your heart. Point number three this morning is that Jesus requires genuine faith in him alone. Verses 23 through 25. While he was in Jerusalem during the Passover, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Sounds like great news. Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to, to them since he knew them all, because he did not need anyone to testify about man, for he himself knew what was in man. I wish there was a happier ending to this story, but at the same time, there's great application and motivation for us. And I'm not going to belabor this point. I'm just going to get right to it, and we're going to close. There's actually commentary about verse 23, what I just read about good news. While he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Why is that's wonderful? Great. People were believing in Jesus because of all the signs they saw. Great. Uh, the Net Bible uh, talks about verse 23, and they say it so perfectly that I'm going to mess it up if I don't read the exact quote. So this is from the Net Bible, uh, which you have access to on your Bible app. It's the NET Bible. It's wonderful. But the comment says here on verse 23, the issue here is not whether their faith was genuine or not. That's interesting. 
but what its object was. These individuals, after seeing the miracles, believed Jesus to be the Messiah. They most likely, though, saw him in a political eschatological figure of some sort. They saw him as the Messiah that was here to overthrow the oppressor, the one that was here to ransom them, to rescue them in the way that they built it up in their minds, that the way that they understood it, which was wrong, not this servant king that would come and lay down his life. So that does not, however, mean that their concept of Messiah was the same as Jesus' own or the author's. So the point is, and I don't like this statement, I actually wanted to skip over the statement, but I'm just going to say it, not all faith is saving faith. People were believing in Jesus, but Jesus did not believe in them. Genuine, saving faith must be directed not only at the right person, Jesus, but for the right reasons. Who he is not merely just what he does for you. And trust me, verse 24 and 25, Jesus knows the difference. You can walk around and have everybody else fooled that I have genuine faith in Jesus Christ, but Jesus, for he himself knew what was in man. He knows your heart. He knows what's in you. And that should scare the living daylights out of you if you are walking around trying to fool everybody. Many people are obviously attracted to Jesus. He had multitudes of people around him during his earthly ministry all the time. So much so that at times he literally had to seclude himself and go off and pray and do all this stuff. Because these people were like, dude, this is the Messiah. He's here. He's, he's performing miracles. He's multiplying bread and fish. And he's feeding us. And he's, he's going to be the one. He's here to save us, right? Some may even agree mentally that Jesus is God's son but not fully trust him. Friends, there was a lot said this morning, and I appreciate your willingness to listen, but as I close, I want you to know this. The only way, the only way to know God and the only way to have true worship and to live your life as a living sacrifice, pleasing and acceptable to God, is to truly believe in Jesus and have life in his name alone. That's it. Not what he does, not, not so he gives you things, just in his saving work on the cross. It involves resting all that you are in him. Jesus is not interested in a fan club. He's not interested in people looking to mooch off of his glory and his power. He's looking for genuine faith, full surrender. That's where it all starts. None of the other points of this sermon matter if you don't get this genuine faith in Christ alone. God's spirit then dwells in your body and then and only then does your worship truly matter. The worship team can actually call up or come up uh, and get ready to, to close us in a couple of songs. That includes me. <laughs> I'm already up here though. I titled this sermon kind of tongue-in-cheek because it's a heavy passage, and I'm not going to lie, I wrestled a lot with this passage. But if anybody's a, a fan of the old Batmans, the Adam West Batmans, holy zeal, Batman. This is, an, this is an incredible passage of Scripture. Last week, we caught a glimpse of Jesus in action privately at a small wedding in Cana. This week, we see Jesus asserting his authority publicly in the temple. Jesus is here. He has made it known. He is better, as we learned last week. He has all authority. 
He demands our true worship. He is good. He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. Praise be to God. John 20, 30, and 31, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Do you pray with me? God, we love you so much. God, what, what an, incredible, an incredible passage of scripture. Lord, I'm humbled by the fact that you would even allow me, this broken vessel, to come up here and speak the words that you want to speak. And God, I hope that I did that as best as I could. Pray that your spirit worked through me and that these, these words are, are penetrating the hearts of those in front of me and behind me, Lord. <laughs> thank you so much for your goodness. I thank you that you've come, that you demand worship from us, that you demand so much from us, but that you set the example of what it is that we ought to do, which is lay down our lives and offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, Lord, because when we believe in you, your spirit comes and dwells in us, God. What an amazing truth that is. Help us not to leave here just, yeah, that's a great truth, and, and then we walk away forgetting that. No, help us to wake up every day remembering the fact that we are God's temple. And Lord, we're asking this morning specifically, if there's anybody here that, first off, does not know you as their personal Lord and Savior, that does not have that genuine faith we just talked about, Lord, I just pray that they would not leave this place without asking somebody God, it's nothing to be ashamed of. If anything, it's something that we're excited to talk to you about. So, Lord, I pray for those individuals. But also, if you are a believer here, Lord, I'm just lifting the believers up to you that we would just ask that you would create in us a clean heart. God, come in and clear out our temple and bring a whip if you have to. God, we love you so much. We thank you for this time. I just pray for the worship team as we play. Lord, we just we give the rest of the service to you. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Uh, it's at this time, I'm going to kind of move this out of the way. The worship team is going to start playing. It is at this time that we do uh, uh, take our tithes and offerings. But listen, if you are a guest here, this is your first time, or if you've been a guest for a while, don't feel obligated. But if you have come to prepare to give uh, and God has laid that in your heart, go ahead and do that. Uh, but the worship team will close us out and um, we'll move on with the service.